Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day and welcome to The Call. Ten stocks picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is Tuesday, the 31st of May. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have your company. Our guests uh, for today, our experts, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and Chris Conway from Marcus today, guys. Welcome to you. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Um, markets uh, will take a bit of a pause today, I guess, but they have rallied, obviously, recently. Even Bitcoin was up overnight. Um, sentiment, though, essentially remaining low. So what sort of, what's the next inflection point you're looking for? G'day, Andrew. Uh, that's a very, very good question. Obviously, we've seen markets stabilise a little bit. Uh, you know me, I like my technicals and I'm paying close attention to the levels on the Aussie market. And 7,200 seems to be the major swing point at the moment. Uh, it's, the, it's the point at which everyone's paying attention to. And above it, suddenly we seem to get more bullish and then below it, everyone seems to be more bearish. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the, the sort of short-term swing point that I'm looking at. But aside from that, and we'll talk to some of the stocks in the, in the list today, I think now is a good time for long-term investors in particular to be looking for uh, high-quality names that have fallen quite sharply but, you know, ultimately will continue to be very good companies moving forward. So uh, there's a few different ways to play it, but, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Scott, same question, I guess. Are you, you're looking for some inflection point at this this point? I mean, a lot of people are asking whether we have seen a bottom, of course. Mm. Andrew, Chris, good day. Look, I'm, I'm a unity ticket with Chris. It's a great time to look for long-term investments because when the market throws the baby out with the bathwater, go and grab the baby. Uh, there's plenty of opportunity, I think, across the market. I don't know if we're at the bottom. Uh, we'll only know that in hindsight. And frankly, you've got to wait 5 or 10%. Even then, you can still fall again. That's the challenge. You can always look backwards and see what happened and pick those things in hindsight at the time. You never know. question for many investors is simply, is there value right now? As Chris said, the ASX is a funny place because we talk about the index or the market as if it's a single thing. Of course, we all know it's not, but we talk about a, a kind of a headline number. There's been a really, really, really different range of outcomes. We know some of the big growth names, tech names from last year have had a shocking 2022. On the other hand, uh, plenty of uh, minerals, resources, stocks, more broadly, energy, of course, even the, the financial sector is doing okay considering. So if you think about, you know, what is the market? You see a single number and that's right. Mm. It's underneath that. Plenty of companies have been uh, either doing pretty well or doing pretty badly or very badly in some cases. Sometimes that's justified. Other times, I think there's opportunity. So not looking for an inflection point per se. Um, I'm a long-term investor, but looking for value or opportunity. I mean, value is in value investing, just looking for good prices and, and great companies. And there are a few of those starting to show up. All right. Well, let's see if there are any in our first five. We're going to be looking at the uh, Lottery Corporation, Maya, Phoenix Resources, Top Shelf International and Goodman Group. All right. Now, our stock of the day, in fact, uh, Scott, yeah, you were talking about baby in the bathwater. Maybe let's talk about baby <laughs> and the milk. <laughs> we're looking at the infant formula segment with a viewer asking our experts for their views. Given 
the shortages in the U.S., Bub's endorsement from the U.S. president. In fact, uh, Joe Biden there tweeting that 27.5 million bottles of safe infant formula manufactured by Bub's Australia coming to the U.S. That equates to uh, about 1 million cans. Bub's share price, well, as a result, spiked around 50% yesterday and then came off a little. It is down today. Uh, Europe is already starting to send emergency supplies as those shortages caused by, in part, Abbott Labs' a recall in February. And A2 Milk saying it's standing by to assist the US government in the crisis, leveraging its current uh, fresh milk distribution in the US. Of course, it's focused on China and it submitted an application to the US Food and Drug Administration last week. Uh, so both those stocks coming off in this morning's trade. Uh, Bubs, of course, that huge jump yesterday, it's off about 6.5%. So, Scott, what are you thinking about this segment at the moment then? Andrew, it's a great question. I think the hardest thing for shareholders and for investors in general is looking at two different parts of the same story. The first is the fundamental underpinnings of the stock or the business. The second is the share price. And those aren't always the same thing. We say on one hand, hey, the Yanks are taking our inform. Isn't that great? Maybe we should buy shares. As you've already said, that was 50% ago. We didn't get, you don't get a chance to trade on the way through unless you get inside information. We don't want to spend any time at Her Majesty's pleasure, so let's not do that. Um, the only question simply is, what did we know before? What do we know now? And at 50-ish percent more, is it still good value? I think that's the hardest part. Seems obvious in hindsight, if you could buy at Friday's price, of course you would. We don't get that opportunity, so we have to buy at today's price if we're buying at all. The challenge is we don't know for how long the US will take bubs. Is this the beginning of a new brand preference? I think it possibly is. We know that generally speaking, um, mums and, and parents in general tend to be super brand loyal when it comes to infant formula. When a kid starts on it, they generally like the same taste, the same flavour. It's always easier to give your child the same infant formula rather than try and chop and change. So that's positive for bubs, potentially for A2 as well. On the other hand, is all of it priced in already? 50% more in terms of value, that's a lot more when you think about you know, the opportunity that either A presents itself or B might be a flash in the pan. Is Bubs you know, in the market in a year's time, in two years' time? Is there meaningful distribution? Is this the beginning of, of something great or is it a one-off flash in the pan? We know full well, I'm talking about tech stocks as we open the program, think about what happened last year and when, when, you know, when a market goes cold, it goes very cold very quickly. I'm going to say, uh, again, get the opportunity to buy it Friday morning's price, of course you take it. Right now, I don't think there's enough obvious value in bubs in particular, just because you don't know. It's a lottery ticket right now. You could come back with your tail between your legs. If you lose that 50% gain, that's a one-third loss back to where it used to be. That's very possibly where you are in a year's time. Or maybe the shares double from here. There's a sentiment question, of course, on top of that, which is why I mentioned the share price, not just the business. I do like A2 Milk. I think A2's got more potential long-term, not in America, but more broadly. I think it's worth more than the current share price anyway. So irrespective, of whether or not it gets the call up from President Biden or his administration. I do like the A2 story generally. Been a really tough time for A2. That provides some opportunity, I think, for patient investors. Mm. Uh, but a big open question. Uh, so, yeah, look, I'm, I'm giving Bubs a miss, not because I dislike the company, just because I think there's already too much speculation on the share price now. Maybe it goes high, maybe it doesn't. I don't think anyone can really know. So that's why it's pure speculation land. But I do like A2. OK, all right. Chris, your thoughts then on those two? Yeah, just leveraging what Scott said, I think he asked the perfect question. Is this a one-shot deal or is this something that's likely to be a consistent opportunity for these players moving forward? Just some con context is important here. Uh, understanding why this deal with the US happened, it's because Abbott Laboratories, uh, their manufacturing plant in Michigan, uh, spat out some formula that needed to be recalled and was ultimately shut down. 
but it will reopen soon. Uh, the other moving part here is that the deal with Bubs is not the only action that the US government has taken. The Department of Health and Human Services has allowed uh, one of the big commodities traders, Cargill, to uh, provide more more raw materials to all of the infant formula producers invoking the Defence Production Act. So they are taking multiple steps to solve this problem. Bubs is just one small part. And in the grand scheme of things, uh, 1.5, uh, 2 sorry, 1.25 million uh, tins to the United States is uh, very small in the broader context. So peeling all that away, again, like I was saying, the context is important. And just looking at the share prices of both of these companies, uh, in July 2020, A2 Milk was $20, it's now four seventy. Uh, and in July 2019, Bubs was around $1.60, it's now $0.65. Cents. So very clearly, aside from anything else, both of these companies have had a tough time of it. Uh, and I believe this this is just a one-shot deal. I don't think this changes fundamentally the story for either of these companies. Uh, and therefore, the, the whole move is already priced in. So uh, I wouldn't be chasing after it based on uh, what we've seen with the, the Bubs deal in the US. All right. Would you be holding it, particularly if you had Bubs? Uh, no, no, I probably wouldn't. Okay. No, if, I mean, if I had Bubs previously, I'd probably be selling it and taking the profit, and yeah. I wouldn't be interested in buying either of these stocks at the moment. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, all right, let's get into those stocks as uh, picked by you. And uh, the first one we're going to take a look at is well, it's actually we're talking about a demerger here. Uh, the Lottery Corporation, uh, the new home of Tabcorp's lotteries and kino businesses. Bahira wanting to know. Um, about that demerger from Tabcorp, uh, saying that some analysts believe that uh, that Tabcorp will be a stable dividend player, and some believe it will be a takeover target. Um, actually, no, that's the Lotteries Corporation you're talking about there. Uh, I own Tabcorp prior to the demerger. How will that cost base be a, a portion between the two? So, Chris, yeah, how are you get breaking this down? Yeah, so I was reading some research, uh, and I tend to agree with it, that the best parts of uh, Tabcorp have gone with the Lottery Corporation. Uh, it's got the high-profile, recognised brand name, strong digital growth, uh, and a retail footprint of around 7,000 retail outlets and venues across the country. Uh, that part of the business generated about 55% of Tabcorp's EBITDA in financial year 2021. So like I said, it seems the best parts uh, have gone into the Lottery Corporation. They have a monopoly position. Uh, as for whether or not it's a takeover target, I, I believe, and, and I'm pretty sure uh, the company said, Tabcorp said at the time about the demerger that by separating the two businesses, it would allow them to both focus on what was most important to their individual parts of the business, but also put them in play. So yes, I would think it is a potential takeover target. And uh, uh, there's some stats out there suggesting that, you know, post demergers, uh, it's something like 65 to 70% of companies end up being takeover targets anyway. So uh, I, I quite like the business. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily hold it for the, the, the takeover potential. I would hold it because it's, uh, it's a good solid business in, a, in and of itself. Okay, Scott? Yeah, Chris has summarised it beautifully. In fact, uh, the Electric Corporation, uh, not only was it responsible for more than half the profit, but it's much, much, much larger. Uh, when you spin off most of your business, it's a, it's a funny scenario to be in. Rather than Lottery Corporation spinning out Tabcorp went the other way, although, as I said, the, the spun out business is bigger. It's a challenging one because the $10 billion business, it did about $380 million of pro forma NPAT, puts on a PE about 28 times. That's a pretty pricey deal. They will pay out, according to the company's information memorandum, 70 to 90% of their 
uh, profits as dividends. So yeah, probably going to be a decent dividend payer and a pretty stable business. As, as Chris rightly points out, this is actually the better of the two businesses in my view. If you're looking for some sort of stability, some sort of, I won't say defensiveness necessarily, but quality, because Tabcorp, I mean, man, you're in, you're in this really super volatile, super competitive sports bookmaking space, uh, online bookies all over the joint um, versus this Logic Corporation, largely regulated um, uh, single provider generally lotteries around that's different states in australia and australia as a whole so it's a really nice defensive business that's why it carries that premium that's why it carries that nice dividend um i, I can't resist taking a little bit of a, a little bit of a swipe at, at the company of course remember it was formed because tabcorp bought tattersalls and then now it's spinning back out effectively with the lotteries business again uh, investment bankers made money both times not so sure about shareholders but we can leave that one for uh, others to ponder uh, to Chris's point, maybe it's a takeover target. It's a big one if it is taken over, but it does have the sort of cash flow characteristics that a private equity buyer in particular would love. Um, the ability to kind of harvest the cash flows from this thing is what they will absolutely look at. So, yeah, there's something there. That being said, the price is not cheap at all. So it's going to pay, private equity is going to pay if it does try and take this one over, a pretty high price to do so, whether it's worth it for them, open question. So as a business, absolutely. Is it necessarily the, the obvious takeover at the current price again if, you, if you're lucky maybe you'll get a decent premium out of it but as Chris said I wouldn't take it for the, for the takeover premium either given if it doesn't come it's a pretty pricey starting point if that PE does hold if there's not meaningful growth from that business the best thing you're going to get is maybe a three and a half four percent dividend if you're really lucky given it's trading at 28 times given it's going to pay two uh, three quarters to 90 percent of its, its uh, profits out as dividends very very hard to see much more than three three and a half to be really honest that could be fine if that's what you're looking for uh, there are worse dividend plays out there so i wouldn't exclude it but it's expensive and i wouldn't necessarily bet on a massive premium again could be wrong for the takeover tabcorp on the other hand because it's smaller because it's probably less obvious and maybe attractive to a trade buyer might be the more interesting of the two in terms of takeover, as Chris said, maybe both because they've been split apart. Um, I don't I don't just like the Lottery Corporation. I like the business itself. The re I always like regulated businesses. It means you've got a lot of protection. Uh, cash flow should be pretty consistent and pretty reasonable. I do expect long-term digital growth. Be fascinating to see how they deal with Jumbo Interactive plays out. I should disclose I own shares in Jumbo. Uh, so I like the business. Would happily look at it at a cheaper price. Doesn't seem cheap enough for me that, to make it likely to be a market beater at this point. Okay. All right. Let's uh, move on to our second one. We're looking at the retailer Meyer Linden wanting to know about this. Uh, in fact, its uh, share price uh, rocketed following that was the following the release of half year results back at the beginning of March. Uh, the company reporting strong growth. Investors, they were excited about the reinstated dividend, in fact, uh, which was the first declared, I think, since um, 2017. So, Scott. Um, yeah, also an interesting space, obviously, given what's going on more broadly with both discretionary and non-discretionary retail at the moment. How are you looking at Maya? Yeah, Andrew, I don't like Maya at all. Let me be really clear up front. I'll explain why, but might as well not hide the headline here unless I bury the lead. Uh, it's an awful business, generally speaking. Here's the problem for Maya. It doesn't have a clear reason for being from a consumer's perspective at the moment. It hasn't for quite a few years. Even that dividend it paid was kind of one of those keep the faith dividends for shareholders rather than a sign the business was well and truly back on track. And as you mentioned, the share price is pretty much back down to where it was before that jump. I remember this was a $3.50 share price back in 2010, now at 43 cents. And that has been the story of the stock. Um, the business itself, look, here's the thing. Once upon a time, Meyer and what was DJs or Grace Brothers called, you know, all those, that whole group, uh, they were farmers. They were the destination you went to when you wanted to find everything in one place rather than going to the local 
shoe shop, the local tailor, the local whatever it was, fashion outlet. These days, what's the department store? It's the shopping centre. It's the Westfield. It's the centre. You know, those those centres are the department stores of old on, on you know, the turbocharge, on steroids. And so you think about why would you go to a Maya inside of Westfield anymore? The answer is probably going to be, well, there isn't one. <laughs> the real challenge for Maya is why, why would you step inside that shop? Once upon a time, you go there and get everything in the one place. That is now the shopping center. What does Maya or DJs for what it's worth offer that's different to what you otherwise get at the shop next door or across the mall or the other side of the food court? And while ever it doesn't have that clear reason for being, it's a really, really tough one to recommend because I don't see how they keep bringing customers in the door. At some point, you might hope they've reached some sort of bottom, frankly, just in terms of there's only so much business you can lose. Maybe they've got some loyal customers who are happy to keep shopping there. But until they really develop a seriously high-quality range of effectively exclusive brands or semi-exclusive brands, the only place you can get them is Maya. Maya's a cool place to go to get brand X, Y, and Z or get particular product categories. Um, there just really is no reason for being for this business. And it makes it a really, really tough one. It's stuck between being a specialty retailer and a shopping center. It's neither of those things in a significant enough way to make it justifiable. So I don't like the business at all. Maybe there's some upside here from the share price if you know speculators get involved or whatever. But as you said, even though that jump, and it was a big jump on the results release, um, given almost all of it back, the market again losing faith, realizing it's probably a not a one-off, at least a bit of a, a keep the faith dividend, a keep the faith profit. Um, they've got fundamental structural problems they haven't yet resolved in my mind. All right, that is a big no. You made that clear. So, Chris, are you seeing any upside for Meyer? Uh, no, and uh, looking at my notes here, I'm worried that I'm just going to repeat just about everything that Scott said. So uh, just a few brief notes. I always ask myself with my what is its competitive advantage and I've not had an analyst or anyone else explain it to me eloquently because I don't think that it exists and if the only uh, competitive advantage that they have is that they exist then that's not going to sustain them long term. Uh, it's an old fashioned business and I'm sorry to say and Scott sort of made this point as well it's the best of nothing and I don't mean it's a terrible business um, but it's not the best of anything in terms of retails and what I mean by that is if you say I need a product, I need a television, for example, then immediately both of you think JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman. So Maya does not spring to mind for any reason whatsoever for any product that I think that they uh, that they hold. They have been trying to pivot to online and they have had some success to be fair. But again, they're so far behind the eight ball in terms of being a great online business that that's not the way forward either. And then finally, it comes out for me is that there's so many better retailers out there. Premier Investments, JB Hi-Fi I've mentioned, a super cheap auto, even something like Kogan, which whose share price has also been uh, on the nose quite dramatically, but at least they know who they are and they know what they're trying to deliver. Like I said, unfortunately, Meyer is the best of nothing. And again, that's not a, a sustainable business model moving forward. All right. If you do happen to own it, do you just, is it too late to cut your losses or you just get out? Never too late. Sell yeah. it, sell it, sell it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's uh, move on into resources. Our third one, Phoenix Resources. It is a boutique iron ore producer uh, from the Iron Ridge Project. That's in WA's uh, Midwest region. Simeon wanting to know, saying as cash on hand versus market capitalization looks very interesting. And Gabriel saying, could this be played as a trade on China coming out of lockdown? Chris. Yeah, so I had a bit of a poke around with this one, obviously, and there, there wasn't much information I could find other than what's freely available out there. They've got that project over in Western Australia. It's NAIR uh, facilities, uh, facilities that the company owns as well. They're, uh, they're trying to leverage those port facilities and their haulage to underpin future growth. 
the point about the cash on hand versus market cap, they have around 86 million cash at last ca- uh, count and the market cap is 145 million. So they've got plenty of cash there and their net operating cash flow so far this year is around 112 million. So the financials look pretty good. Uh, as for whether it's a play on China opening up, well, yes, it is. But frankly, I think you could do better in terms of, uh, you know, something as obvious as BHP or uh, or uh, Fortescue, of course. Um, so I don't necessarily dislike this business. I certainly think there's other businesses out there that I'd rather own in this space, however. Um, so it's a, it's a hold for me at best. Okay. Scott? Yeah, Chris has nailed it again. I think we're going to do a lot of agreeing in this episode, as we tend to do. Chris is a smart bloke, obviously, so that's always good. <laughs> if I'm agreeing with him, I'm doing well. Um, so here's the, here's the challenge. The, the company itself has already said they're going to dispose of or relinquish the holding in the current project and look for, and they say, uh, has been focused on assessing and evaluating new project opportunities. The challenge for that is that that cash on hand and the market cap, they're planning to deploy all that cash. If it was a case of, hey, they're likely to return it to shareholders, and they may at some point do that, potentially. Uh, but if they don't have this uh, Beyondy project in WA and they're going to spend the cash, you don't really know what you're getting. You don't know how well they're going to use that cash or what they're going to buy with it. If they make a fantastic deal, you're going to be getting two and a half, three to one, maybe if, you, if you're lucky for that cash and you're, you're, you're a genius or they're, and they're geniuses. If they don't find an opportunity or they use the cash badly, then all of a sudden you're stuck holding a lemon. And you don't really know what's going on here. So if you're going to buy at this point, you would be buying almost solely for the management, not even for the cash, not for the current project, because they're going to spend the cash, they're getting out of the current project. You're almost really buying a, a cash box and hoping that you can um, trust the management to do a great job. And I want to say trust, I don't mean not trustworthy. You've got to hope the management just managed to deliver a great purchase or some other cash uh, capital management action that might create some value for you. Um, every company wants to try and do that. Every management team wants to try and do that. They all try really hard to achieve that outcome. Some do it. Plenty do okay. Uh, a few do terribly. Um, so, you know, if you're going to make a play on this one, you almost got to put the entire operating business aside and simply say, do I think these people can turn this money, this $80 million plus whatever they get for the current asset, into something much more significant in time? I don't know. I don't think you can reasonably tell. It makes it speculative at best. Um, it, because it's really hard to value because of exactly that. What, what are you buying? You're, you're buying the cash and whatever they get for the business. Ironically, at that point, as much as the cash is more than half of the market cap, I'd almost say in some senses, what's the other half of the market cap made up of? It depends how much they get for the project they're currently operating and whether they can turn that $80 million into even more value. Otherwise, you could end up with value destruction rather than value creation if the excess, excess market cap doesn't actually buy you anything. It can't, be, it can't be turned into actual cash and then redeployed. So uh, way too speculative for me. Watch with interest. If they make a good deal, if the deal looks good, maybe that's the time before the market cottons on to do a little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of, uh, speculative purchasing, maybe, uh, but it's one that I wouldn't touch for now. If I owned it, I'd probably get out and simply wait and see what happens when the dust settles. Okay, all right. Let's move on to Top Shelf International. Austin wanting to know about this. The name well, gives you a clue. We're talking liquor on the Top <laughs> Shelf. It's a distiller and marketer of premium Australian spirits. Also provides services such as canning, bottling and packaging. Um, question is whether it is on your Top Shelf, Scott. <laughs> Unfortunately not, Andrew, and I, 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 would, I wish it was. 
this is one of those, you know, you kind of love, I mean, we all like a, we all like a drink, don't we? Most of us do. Uh, I certainly do. And uh, it's always nice to see businesses coming out of Australia. Australian whiskey is really taking a bit of a, uh, you know, having a bit of a renaissance, or maybe even just an arrival for the first time. Australian gin doing pretty well. We know how well craft and boutique brewers have been going. So it's an interesting space to be in. It's not the world's worst idea to try and make something in the kind of high price, hopefully high margin craft slash boutique you know, alcohol, in this case, liquor. Um, we know there's been plenty before, there'll be plenty after. We've talked, of course, about others. Uh, I, I have owned for a while, have sold since. Uh, Gage Roads, which became Good Drinks Australia, trying desperately to make a, itself into a third force in craft brewing and then in mainstream distribution. Lark Distilling, of course, ran into its own problems with its CEO uh, being dragged through the newspapers not too long ago. It's an interesting idea. It's an exciting idea. It's one of those things we all can identify with. We want to think it might be successful. We want to believe that Australian spirits can be a good thing. Right now, this is a really small company, $88 million worth of market cap. No profits yet to to write home about. Um, so, yeah, look, fascinating. You'd, you'd love to see it do well. Uh, one, we'd all probably keep an eye on just out of, out of pure interest. There's not a lot of investment merit to my mind behind this, certainly not in terms of what it's been able to deliver thus far. Scale is always going to be a challenge. As I mentioned, Gage before, they've been trying for probably the best part of 10 years now, uh, eight or nine years at least, to desperately try to get to scale. They still haven't quite got there a decade later. Maybe Top Shelf gets there, maybe they don't. Um, as you say, that co-packing up arrangement where they offer those services around bottling and canning is something that helps offset some of the cost. Uh, but subscale for now, going to have to find a way to get to scale and then turn that scale into profit. But so I'll be watching this one from the sidelines. Okay, that's a no. Chris? Uh, yeah, it is a no from me as well. Like Scott, being an Australian business, you certainly hope that they do well. Uh, just in terms of their products, they've got uh, the Ned Whiskey and they've got the Grain Shaker, I think it is, Vodka. And they're about $60 a bottle. So they're not competing on price, that's for sure. It seems they're competing on quality. And I would humbly submit that that's a fairly long, hard road given the amount of international competition and imported products uh, here in Australia that they need to compete against. Beverages, like Scott said, very, very, very tough business. Uh, and just looking at, you know, I know this is a sort of a ridiculous measure, but there's plenty of famous people out there with alcohol brands and it's their, uh, well, it's their reach. It's their ability to be on Instagram and all of those other channels talking about their branded alcohols that drive sales. And these guys don't have that. Um, so like I said, uh, I hope they do well, but I think it's mm. a long, hard road and agree with Scott that there's not a lot of investment merit. If you love the products, you might have a crack at the share price uh, and, and buy it. But uh, outside of that, I, uh, I can't see a case for it. Okay, top shelf on the bottom shelf at this point. Let's <laughs> get to our fifth one. Goodman Group. Uh, Dahlia wanted to know about this. It is the integrated industrial property owner, manager and developer. Uh, we know how well industrial property has done in recent times. Chris? Yeah, I've uh, been on the show before saying that I uh, have liked this one over the journey from about $12 uh, and I continue to like it. It has pulled back from the January highs around 30%. I think that creates a buying opportunity. You'll forgive me for uh, 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 giving you this stat, uh, but I think it is important for people to understand the size of the opportunity. Uh, E-commerce is already growing at double-digit pace around the world and by 2030, they reckon the market will be about $23 trillion with large cities accounting for most uh, almost 80% of that consumption. Why is that key for Goodman? Because they owe, own sorry, all the premium sites around Australia really close to urban population centres and that's the key to it all. And the key of course being that it's hard to replicate that. It's hard for anyone else to come in 
and establish those sites close to urban centres simply because those uh, parcels of land aren't freely available. So these guys obviously have first mover advantage. They have $54 billion worth of assets under management, about another $10 billion in the pipe. Uh, I think the sell-off has been caught up in the fact that they are tied to e-commerce. And of course, we're ex-COVID, ex-the pandemic, uh, and those were tailwinds, and now they're a little bit of headwinds. But I think with this 30% pullback in the share price we've seen of late, you're being presented a fantastic opportunity to buy what is undoubtedly still a great company with fantastic assets and a nice growth uh, runway moving forward. So uh, it's a buy from me. Almost sounds like a screaming buy from you. It's obvious to say. Yeah. All right. Okay, Scott. Uh, I'm not going to be quite as confident as Chris, but I think the e-commerce story, this, this is probably, I'm going to say, the better property operator in Australia, listed property company in Australia, for exactly the reasons Chris has outlined. You want to be somewhere with a structural growth. Do you want to be in you know, retail? We just talked about shopping centres, the move online. Do you want to be in those guys? Probably not. Do you want to be in office, re, office um, real estate office property right now with people trying to work out whether they're going to work from home or not? Probably not. You want to be in residential construction with rates going up? Probably not. It makes a whole lot of sense. You think about where, you know, what is the boom area? And yeah, uh, to Chris's point, the, the, the growth in e-commerce is going to continue. The fact we've all kind of, or all of us, some of us have turned our face away from e-commerce and said, oh no, that's that's the pandemic thing. I think it seriously, seriously underestimates the long-term growth of e-commerce. So I like this business a lot, as does Chris. Um, the growth is going to be phenomenal, I think, over time. What worries me a little bit is the change in valuations when it comes to rising interest rates. We know that capitalization rates, one of those jargony terms we use when we talk about properties, the capitalization rate is going to be impacted by interest rates. They basically take the rent, they multiply it by a certain factor, give you a value of a property. The rent doesn't change, but the property price will come down, the value will come down as interest rates go up. And that's going to be a headwind for the company, both in terms of its reported valuation and any revaluation profits or losses that it has to deliver in the short to medium term. So I'm not as confident as Chris, while we're in a, st a state of rising interest rates, if I'm going to be in property, this is absolutely the one I'm going to be in. I'm going to call it a hold for now. I think to some degree, the 30% fall is a part of the e-commerce story. I think it's probably also a part of that uh, reval story, the cap rate story that we're going to see play out, I think, over the next maybe 12, 18 months. We don't yet know how far rates are going to go up. It also may impact occupancy if the Australian economy does tend to stutter a little bit. Um, so I think there's a time to buy it. Maybe this is the time. Maybe we'll look back and go, you know what? It was maximum pessimism back in late May 2022. That was absolutely the time to buy it. For me, I'm going to sit on the sidelines a little bit longer. If I owned it, I wouldn't be selling. And I think Chris is right about valuation coming down. Makes it much more attractive. I wouldn't jump into it just yet, though. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to wait and see what happens with both vacancies, but most importantly, with valuation change on the back of those cap rate changes. All right. Good one. Well, that's our first five. Let's summarise. Plus our stock of the day, of course. We began with that uh, baby formula um, segment uh, with both Bubs and A2 into the US, given they've got a, sh a severe shortfall there. Um, Scott saying, uh, well, no to Bubs. Uh, he does prefer A2 milk. Um, and uh, Chris saying essentially a sell on Bubs. Look, if you, if you owned it prior to yesterday, then, well, you would have done very well, thank you. But um, now's the time to sell given the bump you had on Bubs. All right, our first stock as picked by you uh, was the Lottery Corporation. That's the demerger from uh, Tabcorp. Uh, Chris there saying um, best part of Tabcorp essentially gone. Uh, that's uh, to uh, the Lottery Corporation. He's got a hold on it. Scott, though, saying, yeah, maybe a takeover target. Not cheap, though. He's got, that's a no from Scott. Meyer, goodness gracious. At least we had, we had firm agreement on this one. Scott summed it up by saying it's an awful business. Uh, and 
Chris agrees. No competitive advantage. Old-fashioned. Best of nothing. It's a big no. In fact, yeah, what's well, the sell even if you do hold it as far as Chris is concerned? Uh, Phoenix Resources, uh, Chris saying you could do better in that space like with the biggies, obviously. Um, he's got a hold on it. Scott's saying, look, it is speculative, hard to value. Uh, a no at this point, but you can watch it. Top Shelf International in the liquor space. Uh, Scott's saying, no, it's pretty small, no profit. That's a no. And Chris also saying, it's a really tough market. Also a no from him. And finally, their Goodman Group. Yeah, Chris likes it, uh, particularly given it's had a 30% pullback on its share price. It's a buy. For Scott, though, it is a hold. All right. Uh, the call, of course, is tracking its own high conviction fund. That's picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of the committee meeting is live for you to watch at ausbiz.com. Checking in on the portfolio update, Tabcorp, Domino's, Ardent Leisure and Tyro. They were added this month, shifting the original allocation and cash holding size. So far, our fund is down more than 1% on a cumulative return basis since its inception at the beginning of March. So keep sending in your requests and keep the call switched on to see which stocks our committee will be looking at next. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. The next five we're looking at, Austral Resources, Nico Resources, Pendle, Fisher & Pikeville Healthcare and Horizon. Let's begin with Austral Resources. It's the newest copper producer. Uh, it's from uh, it's Mount Kelly project in Northwest. Chris, is this actually a double barrel uh, question here? Not Chris, uh, our expert, but Chris, uh, our viewer, is asking, uh, can you ask them about both stocks, they look like interesting plays. They've spun off from Metals X. So, Chris, let's actually start then with uh, with Austral Resources. Your thoughts there? Yeah, so I'd start by saying just in terms of the Metals X piece, uh, it's been proven that they weren't particularly good at managing projects, hence why they've sold quite a few of them off and the two that we're about to talk about. Uh, the first one uh, being a copper play. This, of course, is AR1. They have the Lady Annie project, uh, which is currently producing, which is good because it means they're making some money. Uh, and Anthill is the next mining centre that they're trying to move towards. That project is expected to last about 40 months. So not a particularly long project when compared to uh, some of the other mine lives out there. Um, the assets are decent. They've been in the news a little bit recently. There was a Stockhead article uh, and the CEO made some comments uh, hinting about an exploration deal with an industry gorilla was the term that he used being not far off and uh, that sort of put a rocket under the share price and then they've had to come out and clarify what those comments meant. Uh, I think the point there being, uh, and probably why I wouldn't be an investor, is this one is very much going to be driven by announcements. It's at that stage of its life cycle where uh, the fundamentals don't really matter. It will be driven by news and um, comments and uh, and by the uh, the masses on the, the likes of hot copper that will grab a hold of it and drive the share price one way or the other, um, and that's not necessarily a game that I want to play. For those who are willing to play it, um, best of luck to you. But uh, like I said, it's just not the type of business that I invest in, uh, given its current stage of its life cycle. Okay, Scott. 
Yeah, can't disagree with that at all. The announcement and the article by Stockhead, this is going to be a plaything of the traders, the hot money. Uh, that's normally a very, very ugly place to be. In the short term, you can make a lot of money. If the momentum continues, there's some money there to be made. Of course, the momentum turns on a dime. And what's left? Well, probably back to 16 cents or somewhere close to that if and when the crowd simply moves on, loses interest and finds something else to play with. We've seen lithium, we've seen graphene. This is a, a very regular story when it comes to small caps. Not a particularly attractive part of the market. In terms of that, uh, if you are clever slash lucky slash whatever, maybe you can trade that. Maybe you can you, maybe you can make some money trying to guess what the crowd might jump on next or how long they might be excited about a particular company or not. Uh, and that, that's the real challenge. So look, maybe there's something there. But as Chris rightly says, this has only been producing since January. Uh, with less than four-year life, you, not only is that announcement driven, but you're kind of waiting to see what might happen in the future. So you can't really model out what this might even be worth over any period of time. You're hoping that, again, a bit like we talked about before, a management team can find another project or another series of projects. They can be commercialized successfully and profitably. That then is you know, some multiple for that, depending on the mine life and depending on what else it does. So many if-then, if-then, if-then challenges to try and address with this one and overlay that with the fact that even if it was cheap at you know 16 cents, it's not cheap at 50 cents. Uh, and so the market very much um, you know, being driven by, by sentiment right now and announcements, as Chris rightly points out. So interesting business. Uh, brand new businesses are always fascinating to watch to see what they can do with it. It's worth watching from that perspective. But even as I said, even if it is successful, because as Chris said, it's a less than a four-year life, you've really got to ask yourself, okay, well, what then? What, what, what am I basing my valuation on? How much is this worth in three and a half years? as they move out of this project into something else, what is that? How big is it? How long is it? How profitable is it? You can't know the answers to those things almost by definition. This makes it sort of lottery ticket speculation stuff. Mm. Uh, managers will do their best as they always do. But our job as investors is not to necessarily hope and dream and, and you know wish, uh, but to look at a business and say, can I reasonably work out how much this is worth? Am I getting a reasonable discount for that price? Again, you don't have to be a value investor, just generally a growth investor. Hey, what's this gonna be worth in some number of years time? You just can't know with this one, so it's worth giving it a miss, unfortunately. Okay, all right. So our second part to this question is Nico Resources, also a spin out there uh, from Metals X, and this time it's nickel. Scott. And same problem, Andrew. This is, mm. uh, you know, this is this is the challenge with these guys. So uh, they describe themselves as being focused on exploration and studies for the advancement and development of the Central Musgrove project. So. Hopes and dreams stuff. Uh, you know, for, for every explorer that strikes it rich, another couple of dozen at least go begging or spend 10 years raising more and more and more money, trying desperately to find the next big uh, resource base and, and develop that successfully. It is so far away from being production. And again, and again production, then it's got to be production at scale, then it's got to be profitable, and then you've got to have some sense of what the cost might be um, on an ongoing basis, as well as the potential price for nickel to see what this is worth. It's just, it's, or, you know, you're so, so far back. You're behind the start line, not even at the start line when it comes to production. It makes a really, really tough business to analyze. You see the share price being all over the place there. And again, the same sort of story. Um, when the share's jumping around that much, there's nothing in the operation of the business justifying those. Maybe the nickel price moving around is part of that story. It's probably sentiment, hopes and dreams, all that kind of stuff. And again, because you're working in a, in a part of the market where sentiment and frankly, you know, the hot money coming and going is going to probably dictate your short, medium, and maybe even medium to long-term returns, uh, just not worth it for me. Just, it, again, lottery ticket stuff. Yep. Okay. Another no. Chris? Yeah, again, would echo what Scott has said. There's uh, there's a slight difference uh, for me with regard to uh, NC1 
uh, and that's about the potential uh, life of their assets. So their goal, as they stated, is to develop a large, long-life, low-cost asset with uh, tier one assets. Sorry, with over 40 years reserve, producing 40,000 tons per annum of nickel and 3,000 tons per annum of, of cobalt. Um, so it potentially sounds like, and I'm no mining expert, but it sounds like the size of their potential asset is much greater and will mu- last a much longer point in time. So if I was choosing between the two, again, they're both at the very risky end of the spectrum, I would probably prefer this one, even though they're further back in terms of, like Scott said, they haven't started digging anything out of the ground, they haven't built any infrastructure, uh, they haven't done any of those things, but the potential is probably greater. So I look at it this way, if I'm going to have a swing for the fences, I'm going to swing as hard as I possibly can. Uh, So just for, for the person who posed those questions, I think it was Chris, uh, if you're weighing up the two, this is the one that I would prefer for the reason stated. But um, again, I don't invest in the businesses at this stage of the cycle, so it's just not for me. All right, but if you were to, it's a speculative buy then. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to push you on that one. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> maybe Fair enough. let's move to something that's perhaps more in, in your wheelhouse then. Pendle, it is the fund manager. Isaac wanted to know about this, saying I purchased it for around $7 in 2019. I received a great dividend every six months. The share price is very volatile, heading south. I plan to hold it for another three years. What are your views on the management of the business, Chris? Yeah, if I could just be so bold, just before I get into the analysis of the company with Isaac, um, I hope he doesn't take this the wrong way, but I would humbly submit that you should never plan to hold anything for a specified period of time. Hold it for those three years if it does what you want it to do. If it's not doing what you want it to do, then uh, I think that's a pretty good sign that you can uh, you know, start to look for better opportunities because, of course, the opportunity cost uh, of holding this business, if it's not performing, is significant when you can find something better elsewhere. Uh, as for the company itself, their first half operating result was better than expected up and down the street anywhere from 15 to 7% beat, depending on which analyst you ask. It was driven by really tight cost control. The problem with that is, is it repeatable? Can they manage those costs from one period to the next? Or uh, is that um, you know something that, the, that isn't a bottomless pit? I would suggest it's certainly the latter. Uh, they themselves have talked about uh, normalization in the second half, both in terms of costs, as I was just talking about, Uh, and their margin as well. So it seems like the results that they had aren't repeatable. Now, the problem, of course, is as as you were just talking about, Andrew, is that the share price has been sliding lower at a time whilst, uh, uh, in the meantime, sorry, they've had these excellent results, which hasn't really seen the share price turn around. I mean, it has jumped a little bit, but uh, not from the $9 it was in September last year down to the $4 low in March. So uh, I think it's going to be a tough environment moving forward. Uh, and this is one that um, I'd probably be a seller of, yeah. Mm, okay, all right. Uh, Scott? It's really tough, Andrew. It's, I, I really like the funds management businesses generally, investment management businesses generally, because they're super leveraged to what I think is likely to be over the long term a rising share market. There's going to be plenty of volatility, but over the long term, the market has for more than a century uh, gone on to new highs each time, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. If you're leveraged to that, if you can continue to think about the market as a whole, uh, you don't need any more cost, generally speaking, to manage more and more money. Uh, one portfolio manager, a couple of analysts, some marketing staff, um, you, you know, administration, of course, uh, you know, are responsible entities. That's required, but it doesn't grow necessarily anywhere near as quickly as the funds you manage. That's a positive for the, for the industry and a positive for Pendle in theory. 
what they're struggling to do is get those funds in the door. Uh, and as Chris says, or, you know, the old line, you can't cut your way to greatness. Very, very tough to actually deliver meaningful long-term value creation if you're pulling the cost lever to try and make a difference. You've got to get revenue growth. And in this case, that means funds under management growth. The performance has been pretty good as a business. Uh, it can be a bit, of a, a bit of a confidence game. But as we saw with Magellan, when the market turns cold on you, they can turn very cold very quickly and for a very long period of time. Uh, very, very hard in that case then to work on any business, even those that are growing. And, and assume you won't know what the future looks like. A business that's in decline, though, in terms of fun and in terms of the share price, as Chris has already outlined, is even harder to try and analyze and try and work out if and when there's some sort of turnaround and where investor sentiment and fund holder sentiment might recover and return to Pendle. Um, it's not a, a particularly stretching valuation. Uh, so it's one of those businesses I would absolutely keep on a short list. It's not my favorite fund manager. Uh, I am I do have still a, a bit of a, an interest in Magellan at some point. Maybe it's a value trap, maybe it's not. Uh, also, Pinnacle Investment Management, another one I, I quite like. Pendle, I don't mind. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on it. But given the challenges of actually getting more money in the door, until you see that turn around, it's probably a risky one to go with. I'll also echo Chris's comment about the holding period. I like long-term holding periods. They're fantastic. Um, but if you're saying, look, I'm going to sell this on the 31st of May 2025, uh, you know, should I buy the shares? Generally speaking, who knows what's going to happen in between and by that point. So I'll echo that point as well. Uh, I think there are better fund managers out there. But I, said, I do like the industry and it doesn't seem a particularly demanding valuation. I probably wouldn't rush out to sell if I own the shares. Uh, but I wouldn't rush out to buy until I saw some momentum in that funds under management number. All right, I'll take that as a watch. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, moving on to Fisher & Paykel Healthcare. Mm. Uh, Tony wanted to know about this. Uh, it has struggled of late. He's saying I'm a long-term investor. Mm. He holds it. Uh, does the recent pullback represent a buying opportunity? Scott. This is really tough. Fisher and Paykel has been one of those great businesses, a bit of an under, a bit of an under, um, under the radar. Uh, no, as much as everyone knows it, it kind of doesn't get talked about in the same breath as ResMed, for example, a, a relatively similar uh, competitor, or any of the other medical device companies. It's kind of you know, New Zealand-based, off to the side. We don't often think about it, don't often include it in our in our conversations. The shares are down quite a lot. They're down the best part of forty percent. Uh, since the highs of late 2021. And again, that kind of post-COVID trade, as Chris has talked about, the stocks we love during COVID have all of a sudden gone very, very cold. And you can see the, the story there. It's been a pretty awful ride for Fisher & Paykel shells over that period of time. That's a 12-month number, by the way. It's done even more since the peak. So it's been it's been a rocky old ride uh, if you're a Fisher & Paykel shareholder. And it's because the business did really well. Obviously, the respirators, uh, part of its business, they were in super high demand during covid Funny how quickly these things feel like ancient history, but it wasn't that long ago. Hospitals right around the world were trying to find a way to get enough uh, devices, respirators in particular, to do well. Now, if you think of the split-adjusted share price, though, this is a $1 stock back in 2012. It's now an $18 stock, and it was 30 on, on, on one part of the story. So if you blow back a bit further and look at the long-term history of Fisher & Paykel, you really do get a sense of how well this business has been run and how much value it's generated for shareholders. So I'm really loath to dismiss it on the basis of its long-term performance. And I do think if you're in this sort of space, uh, you're going to have long-term growth in your business. More and more of us spending more and more money on medical treatments in the Western world. And the developing world continues to basically become affluent enough to start to afford some of these treatments, some of these devices, some of these technologies. And so the long-term uh, you know, story is probably pretty good. The challenge for Fisher & Paykel is it's always been a little bit like some of the other companies I mentioned and throw CSL in there. Those premium uh, healthcare companies that have always been expensive. 
even now, even after that fall, trading on 31 times earnings on the numbers I've got in front of me here, even after that decline, shows you how expensive it was at the best of times. Is it cheap now? Not obviously, no. Now, you do disregard it at your peril. That 18x return over the last you know decade or so is not to be sneezed at at all. So I wouldn't disregard it. If I own the shares, I'd happily keep holding. Uh, you know, you've probably done very well if you were at any point you know, pre, what was that, 2019, you've still done really, really well. So your last couple of years haven't been real flash because of that peak and that new trough. If you own the shares, I'd happily hold on to them. If you have a view that the market will always apply a super premium valuation to these sort of companies, and that's been the CSL story for almost the entire listed life, the market's been prepared to pay 35, 40, 45 times earnings for CSL. If that ever drops to 20 times, those shares fall in half as well. Um, so it's worth having a think about that. But as I said, even with that recent decline of Fisher & Pike, we're down to 31 times earnings. It's just not cheap enough for mine, given we don't yet know what the new normal looks like, uh, how much excess supply is already in the supply chain, the respirators that are in those hospitals that are now, hopefully, God willing, uh, put to the side because they're not needed for the intensive care patients that are suffering from COVID at the moment. Again, we hope. They're still there, though. And until and unless they become too old to use, they then basically are sucking up or pulling forward previous demand. So I don't know what that demand curve looks like. Maybe it goes back to normal really quickly. Maybe it takes two or three years to play out. If it was cheap enough at 15, 18, even 21 times earnings, I might be interested uh, given the quality of the business. But at 31 times earnings with an uncertain medium-term future, I've got to leave this one alone. Okay. Chris? As always, Scott's made some fantastic points and a lot of uh, what I was going to touch on as well. Uh, I uh, must admit, I do like, <clears throat> pardon me, medical device companies in general. Mm. Uh, Nanasonics, ProMedicus, uh, ResMed, it's got us to talk to, uh, and indeed Fisher and Paykel as well. Uh, the problem being, and, and again, Scott's touched on it, is what does the future look like? Uh, we know that these guys are ex-COVID when demand was through the roof. And now that they don't have that demand and sales have fallen away quite sharply, the company itself is trying to find different uses, different, iteration, different iterations uh, for their particular device, the OptiFlow device. Um, they're looking at using it in anesthesia. And if they crack that, there's a potential doubling of the total addressable market for the device. Uh, so there's potential upside there. But again, when does it arrive? How does it happen? Is it lumpy? Uh, and amid that uncertainty and, and an expensive price like Scott has talked about, I cannot be a buyer of this one right now. But all of those names I'll be looking at and continue to look at uh, because I do like that medical device space. We know that we have an aging population here in Australia and throughout most of the Western world. And we also know that that population has the capacity and the desire to pay for better medical treatments and healthcare as they move into uh, the later stages of their lives. So they have the capacity to pay for the, for, for all of these uh, expensive devices and treatments and whatnot. So the demand will be there. It's just how it arrives, when it arrives, um, will it be lumpy, what will it look like? And like I said, amid, amid that uncertainty, I can't buy it right now, but yep. it will be on the watch list, that's for sure. Okay, good one. Let's wrap it up with uh, Horizon. Uh, this is Australia's uh, largest freight operator. Uh, mainly on rail, uh, it was sort of essentially with coal, but it's now having to diversify, of course, as coal falls out of favour. So, Chris, how are you seeing this one? Yeah, I would say, uh, at the risk of sounding trite, uh, if it's fit for your purpose, then uh, I think it's worthwhile buying this one. And, and the reason for that is it does have quite an exceptional yield. 
Uh, it's got a yield of uh, on the numbers that I'm looking at north of five percent and a gross yield north of seven percent. Uh, there are some expectations that they'll have a tough quarter in terms of the coal volumes, like you were just talking about, Andrew, amid the weather and the pivot away from uh, hydrocarbons. Uh, but that should be made up with the grain uh, that has come, particularly out of Western Australia. Uh, so their the results should be okay moving forward. It's fairly stable business. I mean, at the end of the day, these bulk uh, volumes need to be shipped around the country, and these guys are the ones to do it. Uh, and like I said, it offers a pretty attractive yield as well for what I think is a fairly stable business. So if that's what you're looking for, then uh, like I said, no reason why you wouldn't buy it. Um, so at the very least, a hold, but a buy if you're looking in that income space. Okay. Scott? Yeah, I actually completely agree with Chris. We're going to have to disagree on something, Chris, at some point. Uh, just just so they so you know we're not reading from the same script. Chris and I really don't get together and we're working on this before the program, I promise. Um, <laughs> Horizon, for income investors, I think it's a, it's a great option. In terms of its diversity from most other income type stocks, frankly, uh, most investors have way too much exposure to banks, uh, for example, not enough to other parts of the economy. And if you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to lighten up on my banks and maybe some Telstra and buy something else, then Horizon's a great place to go for that. Um, 6% dividend yield, I think, from memory, uh, 14 times earnings currently. Uh, one of the better cash flow businesses at one of the uh, less demanding valuations in today's market. So it's a really interesting idea for those investors. The real challenge, when I was looking at this one earlier today, that the Clint Eastwood quote, do you feel lucky punk, came into my head. Because uh, as Chris mentioned, as long as they keep those freight cars full, Horizon will make a lot of money for a lot of people. If you start to have some gaps in the freight schedule, uh, given the sheer size and cost of the fixed equipment, capital expenditure for Horizon, it gets ugly real fast. So keep everything full, keep the trains rolling, keep them full, and you'll make a, a, a good amount of money. If and when that starts to slow down, you're going to run yourself into some troubles. And it really does come down to things like, for how long does the rest of the world or Australia itself want our coal? If that is a 25, 40-year story, and even if and when we stop burning coal in Australia, other countries want it and we keep supplying it, then fantastic. If and when that's not the case, if there is some sort of global change or local change of an export ban or uh, new mines are simply not allowed to operate, then the declining volumes will actually start to hurt Horizon pretty quickly. And the challenge for investors is once the market sees that coming, they'll price it in now, not then. So if we have a story that obviously in 2025, 27, 30, whatever it is, Horizon's volumes will likely start to decline, then the market starts to price that in three, five, seven years earlier because no one wants to be left holding the bag at that at that future point so it's a really really tough one as it is that do you feel lucky punk kind of scenario because it really does depend on to my mind um chris is right about those wheat volumes by the way but the coal volumes particularly in queensland are going to be a key part of the horizon story one way or the other um i do think it's okay for income investors uh good enough yield it may be a little bit volatile from time to time but mm -hmm. it's a very good place to start i think a good business to own for income i wouldn't want to be super exposed to it so think about your position size just in case the bad news comes earlier than we expect. I don't think it's a market leader either, though, from here, because the upside simply isn't there. It's priced for exactly what it's going to do, which is reliable income for as long as that lasts. The upside surprise potential, just in my mind, not there, yep. which means that if you've got a big-ish or you know, decent-sized downside risk, not much upside potential, you're very, very unlikely to be able to deliver long-term compound returns that are market beating. So have a think about who you are, as Chris says. Income investors, I think, fantastic. There's quite a few stocks that are in that category of great for income, not necessarily going to beat the market. I'd put a rise in that camp. Okay. All right. Um, 
That brings us to the end. I'm going to have to check your pre-show pre -show notes there just to check who's copying <laughs> whose homework, all right? Who's copying whose homework, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, uh, Chris, thanks for joining us and Marcus today and Scott from uh, Molly Fall. Thanks, 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 Chris. All right, let's uh, just uh, check where we've been the last half of the show. We began there with Austral Resources. In fact, it was a double question here. Austral Resources and Nico Resources, spin out of Metals X, Austral and Copper, a no from both. Uh, Nico Resources there uh, in uh, Nickel, uh, Scott, no. Chris, really a no for him, but say it could be a speculative buy. Pendle, the, the fund manager there, uh, Chris got a sell on it. Uh, Scott is watching it. And uh, Fisher and Pikeville Healthcare, a no from both, although Chris is likely to watch it. And just finally there, Horizon, um, a hold, maybe a buy. He's also watching it as far as Chris is concerned, both talking about great income stock there for Horizon. All right, any stocks you'd like us to cover, flick us an email, the call at ausbiz.com.au, or you can tweet us at ausbiztv. And a reminder, you can find the stocks in the course portfolio, head to ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.